The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. Last October, the words Me Too became a rallying cry. Almost overnight, social media exploded with millions of women and some men sharing their stories of being sexually harassed and sexually assaulted. Coming up in just a moment, I'll talk with the founder of this movement, Tarana Burke. But first, Iowa Public Radio production assistant Natalia Reyes asked people in Iowa City to share what the Me Too movement means to them. Uh, My name is John Cohn. The Me Too movement means for me that it is uh, an expression of women's outrage and exhaustion uh, after uh, having been for so many years uh, being abused and mistreated uh, in the workplace and at home, and it is an expression of that um, refusal to accept that anymore. And it is an absolute, it's a wonderful thing, it's a time in history that's been long in coming, and I am absolutely 100% behind it. Rosemary Skinner. I think they're they doing, you know, really great. I think they're accomplishing a lot because it's a lot of women that's coming out, you know, and expressing themselves about what happened to them. So I think they're doing great. I'm going to be honest, I do have family members that have been through that. I think this, is gonna, this movement is going to make it push it, really push it, so this can stop. This needs to stop. My name is Erin McInerney. I'd like to see the people who assault women and men on a lesser scale actually have some consequences to those actions. I really hope the Me Too movement is propelling us in that direction where assaulting people has consequences, but I, I don't know if I really think it's doing that. I hope it is. I just, I don't know. It's hard to have hope at this point. Uh, My name is Hillary Long. Um, Just getting the awareness out of it. You know, people giving their stories, making aware that these things do happen and that it is a serious problem that most women in our country today are dealing with. So I think it's very cool that they're willing to, you know, be brave and step up and tell their story. Anthony Houghton. I think it's important that we listen to all of the women that are coming out and telling their stories and work on how we can engage them in a healing process. Um, That's something that Tarana Burke, the founder of the movement, I've heard her talk about it a little bit. And I think like that's something that's really powerful. Um, We need to stop trying to attack the people who are coming out in the movement and start figuring out how we can engage them and work with them and provide them the services that they need to move forward in their lives. My name is Eden DeWalt. To me, I think that it will endure. And maybe if it's not in the headlines, it's in conversations. And just the fact that we are allowing people to make it okay to talk about this, which I think is the most important thing that, you know, I myself am a victim of sexual assault. And I know that everybody's experience is different than mine, but just when I had, when I started feeling comfortable to discuss this with others, um, I had a really great friend who helped me through this, and she said that it's a, it's a group that no one wants to be a part of, but once you're a part of it, you can use that to help others.
The voices of people in Iowa City sharing what the Me Too movement means to them. And although the Me Too movement exploded in October of 2017, the movement actually started years before with the work of Tarana Burke. She is the senior director of Girls for Gender Equity in Brooklyn, New York, and she was named one of Time's People of the Year as a silence breaker. She spoke at Iowa State University and the University of Iowa earlier this week, and while she was in the state, she took some time to talk with me on the phone. I asked her to take us back to the beginning to tell us where the phrase Me Too originally came from. Um, It originated from an experience I had where I was uh, mentoring of working with a young person who had experienced sexual violence and had disclosed it to me. And it was just my inability to share that with her, to, to share my own experience with her. And knowing that somebody had to share that with me when I was a young person, that things might have been different. And so in my mind is where it originated. I think in actuality it came from once we decided to do the work in the community, trying to um, figure out what was best, what best made sense in terms of um, how we reach people, how we reach young people, and something that was, like, short and powerful. Um, but it all, you know, it was the thing that it meant a whole lot of things for different people. Right. So it meant uh, you're not alone. This is something that I've experienced, too. Uh, what are right. some of the other you. layers of meaning? Well, I also think it means it's a declaration, you know, as we've seen in this moment since October when it went viral, is that it's also a declaration for people to stand up and to say, you know, you can't ignore me. You can't see me. I mean, you can't not see me. You can't not hear me, right? Like, if this many people stand up and say are saying the same thing in sort of unison, it can't be denied. When you started using the phrase in your work, I can imagine that it, it brought a lot of comfort and, and empowered a, a lot of the girls, a lot of the women that you worked with. What was your vision for this phrase? Our vision was, well, it was more than a phrase. Our vision was to, to take the idea of empowerment to empathy and spread that for survivors so that they understood that not only were they not alone, but they can be empowered by the, the, um, the knowledge that they're not alone, right? Because there's a power in knowing that you not only uh, live through something, but you survive, and that you didn't survive by yourself. And so our vision in the be- in, from the very beginning is the same as it is now, which is to make sure that survivors have the resources that they need to craft the healing journey, and that journey starts after they're able to stay. And so that's, that's really, you know, where our focus is. Part of your mission is also to educate, particularly young women or girls, about what is not okay, right? Yeah, we started out very much using language, teaching, you know, young people just in a very direct way what things meant and why they weren't, like, you know, when you have young girls who are dating grown men or who are having dealing with these various experiences at the hands of adults and don't know that they don't feel good, that don't, you know, um, don't know how to articulate it, uh, that can be really difficult. So it was definitely uh, education around, like, brass tacks, what things mean. When this hashtag started blowing up in October, what 
was the first thing that went through your mind when you noticed that this was trending, that things were starting to happen? Oh, I was surprised. I was incredibly surprised because I, you know, it wasn't something that we had put out. And I was just, I was incredibly curious about where it, where it had come from and um, who had gotten a hold of it and, you know, that kind of thing. And so, uh, Well, I've also read that, you know, that you thought this can't be good. Is that, is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely nervous. And, like, you know, I've seen things go viral and I've seen people's work, women, particularly black women's work, get erased in those kind of moments and spaces. So I was definitely concerned that I didn't know who put it out at that point. You know, when I first saw it going viral, I had no, um, I couldn't figure out where it started from until I saw it in the media that Alyssa was the first person to see it. Have you, have you talked to Alyssa Milano, who was the, the actress that, that kind of put it out there yeah. in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein? Oh, no, I talked to her, yeah, we talk all the time. <laughs> we, she reached out to me within uh, probably 48 hours, like she found out that, um, you know, that this work existed and that we had already been using it. And she reached out right away and was like, I, you know, and basically was saying, you know, this wasn't intentional. And now that I know, I want to try to figure out how we can help amplify your work. And that's what she's been doing, really, since since um, since it happened. So I talk to her, you know, pretty regularly. And whenever we can think of things to do collaboratively, we do that. But she's been super supportive. So when she had put the phrase out there, it was it was in some ways coincidental that that she had picked up on a phrase that you had coined years before. Right. To use in that way, too, because, because, you know, there have been other people who had used um, the phrase, but not in relation to sexual violence. You know, there's even me two shoes, you know, right. shoe company. So people have used it over the years, but it's. Um, but not in that way. And so I think it was really important for us to, like, insert ourselves in the conversation to say, hey, wait, this this work exists, and, and if you're using it in relation to sexual violence, this is what we mean by that. Like, this is what, um, this is uh, the, the way in which we use that. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too from Iowa Public Radio, a podcast dedicated to talking about Me Too and its impact. During this episode, I've been talking with Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. I asked her about a common criticism of the Me Too movement, that it conflates sexual harassment with sexual assault. I asked her how she feels about that. I don't understand that. The, 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 the idea that people are conflating, all of those things fit under the same umbrella. Sexual violence happens on a spectrum, and on one end of the spectrum is sexual harassment, and it may not be, that doesn't also mean, like, we have to also look at how we define violence. And so somebody is in a situation where they're being harassed constantly, and their mental state is being put at harm, that that is a form of violence, that's first. But also... Sexual harassment is on the spectrum of sexual violence. And so whether you've been sexually harassed or you've been sexually assaulted, you can still say me too if that happens to you. I don't think it's a conflation. I think we have to have a more nuanced look at what the reality of our world is. The reality is that, like you said, most people who have survived some form of sexual assault, sexual abuse, have also been sexually harassed in their lives. And this movement started about dealing with people who were 
dealing with both things. The, the, the tweet that Alyssa Milano put out said, if you have dealt with sexual harassment or sexual assault, the same me too. And so it's not wrong for people for both of those things to fit under one umbrella. The movement is broad enough and large enough to deal with both of those. They're not, that's not to say that they're dealt with in the same way. I think that the media conflates that. I don't think that we've seen actual people asking for people who have been sexually harassed to be dealt with. I mean, sexual harassment to be dealt with the same way as uh, somebody who commits a violent sexual crime. I haven't seen that. I've heard people say we have to deal with all of these things, including this. As this movement has grown, we have seen a lot of men, uh, a number of very high-profile men, actually lose their jobs, um, you know, be removed from, from their positions. Were you surprised when that started to happen? I mean, I, so I was surprised on some level because we, we never see accountability. When we ha- can't continue to have the conversation about high-profile men being taken from their jobs, it's the reason why people think that this is a movement about taking down powerful men. Those men being removed from their jobs have nothing to do with what happened with the women standing up and telling their truth. That's a corporate response, right? And so I'm surprised that, that am I surprised that the corporations finally stood up and did something about things that they more than likely knew about already? Sure. There's no way that nobody can make me believe that the people in Harvey Weinstein's company did not know about his behavior over 20 or 30 That's not, I just, I won't believe that. And so for them to fire him and make him step down now in 2017, you know, sure, that's not really accountability. That's just trying to, to, to mitigate culpability. And so, you know, but the women who stood up, the women who came forward and told their stories, none of them said, I'm doing this so Harvey Weinstein can be taken down. I'm, I'm trying to target Harvey Weinstein. They just simply said, I want to be heard. I want to be believed. And they didn't know what was going to happen. I, I, well, I think a lot of the questions rise out of the fact that we really have never seen anything like this before. Yeah. I mean, this this has become yeah. such a powerful movement. What do you think it has accomplished so far? Well, if nothing else, it has definitely accomplished raising the profile and, and, and amplifying the voices of survivors in the country. And it has definitely accomplished bringing the... Um, the pervasiveness of sexual violence into, into the forefront of our national dialogue. We've never had a sustained conversation in this conference, in this country about the effects of sexual violence or even sexual harassment, you know, not since Anita Hill. And even that was so hotly debated and so heavily um, not in favor of this woman who stood up and told her truth that we're now in another 25 years later dealing with the ramifications of you know, what if we had to believe Anita Hill and had a serious conversation about sexual harassment in the workplace in 1991? Where would we be now if we had launched, if that moment had launched a movement? But it didn't. And so, you know, we are in a moment where we are um, we're finally having a sustained national conversation about it. The media is interested in it. People are interested in it. And so we're also only six months in. You know, I think that it's a good question to ask because we need to constantly interrogate ourselves and, and we should be asking, you know, what are we learning about ourselves as people, as Americans, as citizens, as human beings? But we have so much more to learn. I don't think we can make an assessment at this month. When we talk about 
educating girls and women, when we talk about empowering girls and women, so they understand that that this is not okay, that the way that they're so often treated in our culture is not okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a- about the boys and men and not the powerful boys and men. Um, I, I would have a hard time accepting an argument that these powerful men, these high profile men didn't know that what they were doing was wrong. But there are a lot of boys who've grown up in this culture whose role models regularly sexually harass women who have this idea of masculinity that includes, you know, that you need to dominate women to become a man or commit violence to become a man. What about those boys? I mean, if we educate and empower women, we're doing half the job in some ways, right? What do you think about the boys? I don't think that anybody is suggesting to educate and empower women without educating and empowering boys. I think that the conversation has been mostly about having comprehensive sex education that is for all children. Um, This is not a woman's movement. Men and boys are sexually assaulted and sexually abused, and that can't be forgotten. And so, one, it's about protecting vulnerable people. But two, in as much as men and boys are perpetrators of, of times against women and girls, you know, related to sexual violence, we certainly have to have universal conversations. And that starts with a comprehensive sex education curriculum that young people can take advantage of from very early ages, right? We have to start talking to children in kindergarten about boundaries and respect and, and interpersonal relationships in the ways that they understand, you know, in ways that are relatable to a six-year-old, but if we can teach a kid to, you know, not run with scissors, we can teach a kid not to touch somebody without permission. And if you imagine what kind of world, like, we keep hearing that this is a culture shift. It's not a culture shift. We won't have a culture shift until we have a generation of young people who, who intimately understand and understand it like it's second nature, what boundaries are, how to respect people, how you interact with each other as human beings. Now, you still have a day job. You're senior director of Girls for Gender Equity. I- I'm sure right yeah. now everybody wants a piece of you. They <laughs> they want you to speak, as as people in Iowa obviously want. Um, how how has this changed life for you personally? Well, you know what? This it has changed a lot. So first, for, for sure, it has definitely changed a lot. But but it's also the work that I've chose that I chose a long time ago, and it's work that I've been fully committed to for a very long time, much longer than a decade. And so, you know, in many ways, I'm so grateful and thankful to have, you know, an elevated platform and have this sort of wider audience to talk to people about this work and to, when I come to places, people keep asking, like last night I spoke at a Iowa State neighbor, like, what made you come to Iowa? And I said, well, I was invited, (laughs) you know, and I'll go wherever I'm in, pretty much wherever I'm invited if I have a chance particularly to talk to young people about, because they are the ones who are going to carry this work on, right? I fully expect some young 26-year-old, bright-eyed, thoughtful person to take over this work and this movement in the next couple of years. They, they are the ones who have to carry this work on and, and really do the work of changing, the, you know, shifting the culture. And so I think it's important that they hear about what the vision is and they, and they really you know, buy into and believe in what the vision is for a way forward for this, for not just the Me Too movement, but like for interrupting sexual violence in our country, I think it's possible. But it's going to take a lot of work from a lot of people. This has 
raised your profile dramatically. It's also, I'm sure, made you a target. I mean, we all know about internet trolls, and there has been a backlash to the Me Too movement. Oh, yeah. How how does that manifest itself in your life? Well, you know, I mean, it's just like you said, there's been a tremendous backlash. I get hate mail and and all kinds of hateful things thrown at me all day, every day, via social media and email and messages, packages, all kinds of things. Um, and that's, you know, that's a lot to deal with, too. That's an, that's an unexpected change in your life. You know, you don't ever expect to, like, walk the red carpet or be named Time Magazine Person of the Year. But you also don't imagine that you'd live a life where you have to have high security and deal with death threats. So I am... Um, still adjusting to this level of visibility and what it what it comes with it's not pleasant at all you uh, clearly are, are talking to everyone and talking about all women who experience sexual <laughs> harassment and sexual assault uh, all people all people and in Iowa you've been talking to audiences that are largely white audiences, um, because mm-hmm. that's that's a reflection of our state. <laughs> yeah. So what do you want people, particularly white people in this country, to understand about what it's like to be a person of color in this environment of sexual harassment and sexual assault? Well, I mean, I've, I've said a lot of times, um, and I, and I think because I think it draws the, the point home to people that sexual violence doesn't know race or class or color or age or any other designation or, or, or um, demographic, but the response to it does. And so if I wanted people, uh, white people in this country to know anything about it, it's to keep that in mind. You know, when I was growing up, my, my elders used to say all the time, when uh, white folks catch a cold, black folks catch the flu. And so, and that meant that, you know, things that happened that may be detrimental to communities outside, like white communities, are twice as bad in communities of color. And so if there was anything I would want people to remember is to remember that, you know, we've seen it in just in the wake of the Me Too movement of, of how people have, um, how stories in communities of color and marginalized people in general have not been told and they've not been censored. And so one of the things that I do in my work is to make sure that I censor those most marginalized voices, knowing that that will include everybody, right? It's not to, it's not to the exclusion of anybody because there's a survivor's movement, but it's to make sure that those voices get heard because if you don't, they get left out. Um, and so I think that that is, you know, I always feel like, I would say I feel like privilege is not inherently bad, but the way you use your privilege is. Right. We live as long as we live in a capitalist country. There's going to be privilege, and there's going to be privileged people, and that's I don't know that we can do anything about that, but we can certainly influence the way people, the way we use our privilege, and it should always be in service of other people. And so, and that goes for whether you're white, whether you're wealthy, whether you're educated, whatever your whatever your privilege looks like, it should be in service of those who have less than. Um, so once we listen to these women's voices and these men's voices as well, what do, once we listen to the voices of the Me Too movement, what's next? How do we use our privilege? In several ways, right? The Me Too movement was founded because there were gaps 
in the community. There were gaps in resources um, for people who had dealt with sexual violence. And there are those same gaps exist in all of our communities. And so, it's you know, we have lots of plans about how we're going to build out our work and scale it up so that we can meet the demands that we have currently from people. But even if you don't engage with the Me Too movement and don't join us and don't do work under the umbrella of it, if you're if you're at all um, willing or wanting to do anything about sexual violence, people just need to look for the gaps. Right? I tell people all the time there are so many gaps in not just the resources, but in, even in our, our uh, protecting the most vulnerable. And so what people can do with their privileges, use it to try to find where the gaps are in your community. And, it's, and I think that people... We always, think, we always think about movement in very large swaps, right? It's like going to march on Washington with a million people or some big rally or some big protest. But movement happens over time, and it builds, and it's built, and, and it takes many different people doing many different things. So if you're a community of five people who become watchguards in your neighborhood or in your community around sexual violence, that's also work that has to be done, you know? If you are doing research, that's also what they have to be done. I just think doing the work, what Me Too does is give a lot of people a framework for doing work to end sexual violence. So there are any number of things that folks can do, even if it's just getting behind legislation. Right? You can go to, if people want to be active today, you can go on the website, rain.org, and put in your uh, zip code and find out what local legislation is pending in your state to pass around sexual violence and get behind that legislation. That's not a hard thing to do. And that's a way that people can become active. It just needs people to be active. It sounds like you are very practical, pragmatic about using this moment in time to further your work. What What's your biggest hope for the future? My biggest hope is that people will remain active, that people remain focused. The problem, when, when people are not thinking about the Me Too hashtag, when it becomes something that we revisit once a year to find out what the progress is, my hope is that people will not need validation through the mainstream media. They won't, that when it comes out of the popular conversation, that we still understand that the problem exists, that the work has to continue, and that we have, you know, I don't, people ask all the time, like, or what will you do a year from now if nobody's talking about Me Too? That's not really the point. It's not that people have to keep talking about Me Too. People have to keep working to end sexual violence. And that's, you know, I'm not married to a, a phrase. <laughs> you know, I think the phrase is incredibly useful and, it, and it, it powers the work that I personally do, but I'm not the only person. And so if only 1% of the people who are newly engaged in this fight to end sexual violence continue to be engaged in it a year from now, that's still a victory for us. My hope for the future is that we continue to build the movement as we go along, however that happens. If the mainstream media and it's in pop culture and all of that, if that's the way we do it, fine. If it's brick by brick, community by community, person by person, fine. I just need people to keep working. I've been talking with Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. I'm Charity Nebbe, and you're listening to Unsettled, Mapping Me Too from Iowa Public Radio, a podcast dedicated to talking about Me Too and its impact.